Well, if you've been with us at all over these uh, past few weeks, you're probably uh, relatively familiar with uh, uh, this series that we've been walking through. And there may be some others who have uh, who've missed a couple of weeks. And so just to kind of catch you up, as we've been talking about this theme of discipleship, we've really been working with uh, sort of this one central idea. And uh, if, uh, if this idea... Uh, would to be proven false, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down and we've wasted your time. Um, but I think it's, it's fairly sound in that our identity shapes the things that we value. And in turn, the things that we value, it shapes the way that we live. It shapes our practices. So in other words, uh, who we are, it shapes what we love. And then what we love, in turn, shapes how we live. So just take, for example, if, if we see our, ourselves primarily as employees, uh, whatever your given career is, uh, your value is probably going to be your work. And so then the way you're going to practice that is you're going to spend a lot of time in your, invested in your work. So who you are... And how you see yourself, it shapes the things that you value. And in turn, those things that you value are going to shape what you do and how you live. And so then, the question for us, as we begin talking about discipleship, it starts first and foremost with the question, who does Jesus say that we are? What is his work, his life, his death and resurrection, what does that say about us as disciples. Now, there are a number of words we we could choose. Uh, We're people who are forgiven. We're people who are freed from the curse of sin. We're people who stand justified in the sight of God. We're people who are righteous. We have a right relationship with God. But one of the words that we've come up with that we, uh, well, we didn't come up with it. It's throughout the scriptures that we think really encompasses a lot of these ideas is that we are people who are deeply loved. We are people who are deeply loved by God so much that he would send his own son into the world to give himself up for us. To die and rise again that we could be made right with the one true God of the universe. As God's children who have been baptized into Him, we are people who are deeply loved. And with that, and because of that love that our God has for us, we are living. We are people who are living in Christ. People in whom Christ now dwells, and that actually brings us to life. The Scriptures constantly speak of of our state in sin as being dead in our trespasses. But through faith in Christ and the love that He has for us, we have been brought to life. And that is intended to be an abundant life. A life not lived in service to ourselves, but a life lived in service to Christ and to our neighbor. And as people who are loved and living, our values and and the things that we love in life are radically reshaped. And at the center of those two things are we value the worship of Jesus above all else. 
That rather than worshiping things of the world, we fall before Christ and Christ alone. And on top of that, we have been made a part of a community with whom we worship. And together as that community of God's people, we are a light to the world through whom the world can come to know who this Jesus is. And so as people who are loved and living, we value this worship of Jesus and we value this community. And these values of us as disciples are what shape our practices and how we live. Last week, Pastor Brad, he talked about the practice of repentance. That activity of of turning away from sin and turning back to Christ. That's the repentance, that repentant life shapes how we practice each and every day. How we seek to live and worship Jesus. We begin so by repenting of sin and turning back to Christ. Right? That's a huge reason why each and every week we begin our worship with confession. Right? We confess our sins. We confess where we've fallen short. And we turn back to God seeking the forgiveness that He speaks so that we could depart in peace knowing that we have been set free to serve Christ and to serve our neighbor. And so now we come to our second practice, which is the practice of of devotion. And and one of the ways that I think, and maybe the central way that we express devotion in faith, is by devotion to the Word of God. And and as I was preparing this week, I I kind of went on on a little bit of a search, and, and I came across this article that coincidentally, uh, it was written the same week that I started here at Lamb of God, back in July. And the article, uh, it had something of an alarming title. Uh, Here's what it was. The article was titled, The Epidemic of Bible Illiteracy in Our Churches. So you could kind of guess what the article was about. And it wasn't a particularly positive light that it shed on the church. Basically, it said that Christians are reading the Bible less and less and are increasingly unfamiliar with the story of Scripture. Here are just a couple of of statistics from this article. It said that of, of people polled, and this was active Christians, people who are regularly active in a local church, only 45% read the Bible more than once a week. So more than half of active Christians read the Bible about once a week. And then it said one in five Christians almost never read the Bible. Which, which coincidentally, is the same number of people who said that they read the Bible almost every day. So for every person who is regularly immersed in Scripture, we have one person who is pretty much never outside of Sunday morning immersed in Scripture. Now, I don't know what, uh, what you think or what you feel when you hear those numbers. Uh, maybe you hear them and, and it's surprising. Uh, maybe you hear them and you're thinking, yeah, you know, that, that sounds about right. Maybe you hear it and you, and you feel really guilty because you're like, oh, I might belong to that one in five that almost never reads the Bible. Now, I'm not here to, to heap a bunch of guilt on you. And, and I want to tell you what I hear when I hear those numbers. I hear failure. 
and, and not failure of, of individual Christians uh, who just are, are stubborn and refuse to read the Bible. What I really hear in that is I hear failure in the church and its leaders, both professional and unprofessional, to actually engage people with the scriptures. To actually give people a reason and a purpose for reading the scriptures. Because if we really believe that this is the word of God, that the promises made in here are made by God himself through his servants. If the way that we're called to live in here is not just some creation of man, but is actually given by God himself, then we should feel some sense of obligation. We should be seeking to give people some sense that it's important to read this. And so what I hear in that is failure. Failure of people like me to give people a reason to be regularly immersed in the scriptures. Because let's be really honest. Life can be extremely busy. It can be extremely hectic and chaotic. And sometimes it can be hard in the midst of all of the things that are are vying for our time, amidst all the things that claim that they're all important, it can be hard to stop and, and just try to rest in the Word of God, can it? Right? We we have bills to pay. Right? I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep up. How is spending time reading this book going to help me with that? Or I'm trying to raise kids and I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. Seriously. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. How, how is reading this going to help me with that? Or I'm caring for sick loved ones. Or I have a family member on his deathbed. How is reading this book going to help me with doing any of that stuff? And even more than all of that, even more than all the things trying to vie for our time, sometimes this book can just be really weird and hard to understand. Right? What's with all these strange laws about what we can and can't eat in Leviticus? How come in the book of Numbers, all it seems like Israel wants to do is rather than get to the promised land, we're just going to keep counting our people? What, why, why does Jesus keep teaching us with these strange stories called parables? What's Paul's obsession with circumcision? That sounds rather Freudian. I don't get that. <laughs> And you can just forget Revelation altogether. (laughs) Life is busy, chaotic. And this book can be hard to understand. Why should I be devoted to reading these scriptures? You know, one of my my favorite favorite stories in all of scriptures is our gospel reading this morning. When Jesus is walking along this road uh, with two disciples... And it's after the resurrection, and, and they don't know it's Jesus. And, uh, and I just, I love this story. It just always intrigues me. And, and so I'll just kind of let uh, Luke tell the story for us here this morning. Here's what he writes in, in chapter 24, picking up at verse 13. It says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, 
about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So we have these two disciples of Jesus who, who would not have been members of, of the twelve, sort of the inner ring of disciples, uh, but they were disciples, followers of Jesus nonetheless. And it's, it's three days after Jesus had been crucified. And they're walking from Jerusalem to this smaller village named Emmaus. And as they're going, they encounter Jesus. And before they encounter him, they had been having this conversation about all these things that had happened, about his crucifixion, about how he had been arrested and and accused falsely and, and tried and sentenced to death on a cross. And now it's three days later, and and we have this strange testimony about the tomb being empty. And and supposedly there was this vision of angels. So they're talking about all these things, and suddenly Jesus walks up, except they don't recognize that it's Jesus. Now, I've always wondered, why don't they recognize that it's Jesus? Does he sort of miraculously veil his identity from them? Is it because maybe it's just growing dark and and they don't really see or they're not really paying close attention? They're too preoccupied with what they're talking about? Maybe it's their unbelief. Their unbelief that Jesus could have actually risen from the dead that prevents them from seeing who this is. But whatever the reason is, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And Jesus sort of just plays dumb during this whole conversation. And he asks them what they're talking about. And I find it interesting that, that Luke points out just sort of their, their emotional reaction to this question. They stop dead in their tracks. They look sad and in despair. It's as if this simple question, what are you talking about, is like salt in an open wound. The thought of rehashing all of these events just fills them with more sadness, more despair more hopelessness because of what had happened. And so then, Luke gives us their response in verse 18. Then one, of named, named, then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I think their response, it really gives sort of the reason 
for their sadness. You see, they're saddened by this question and by all that had happened because they had put their hope in Him. They had begun to trust in this man, Jesus. See, for years, the people of Israel, they had been waiting for this Messiah, one who was going to come and redeem them, one who would come and set them free from the oppressive rule of Rome. And they thought it was Jesus. He had proven Himself mighty in word and deed. And they thought He was going to be the Messiah. He thought He was the one sent by God to set their people free. But you see, the voice of the world, it had, it had drowned out any notion that that could be true. Because He had been arrested. Tried. Beaten. Tortured, mocked. They felt like they had been duped. That they had just bought into this big lie. And now it's been three days and there's these women claiming they'd seen angels and the tomb was empty, but no one's seen him. And so there they're left in their sadness, their hopelessness, their despair, and their confusion. And Jesus' response to all of this I think is just hilarious. Because he has no sympathy for it. Listen to what Jesus says. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. I love Jesus' response. I've always wondered, you know, what would happen if maybe in like a pastoral counseling situation, if I heard someone just sort of pour their heart out, and my response was, oh, you're just so foolish. You're just so slow of heart to believe. Have you tried that? No? Should I? But then notice after Jesus calls them foolish and slow of heart, what does he point them to? He points them to the scriptures, which I find extremely interesting and even slightly strange because the only thing that was necessary, the only thing that they needed to relieve their sadness and despair was the person that they were talking to. Right? Couldn't have Jesus just said, ta da, it's me. Like, the guy you thought was dead is me. I'm talking to you right now. But he doesn't do that. He points them to the Scriptures. You see, what Jesus does is before revealing to them that he had, in fact, risen from the dead, he points them back to what had been written about him in the Old Testament. And he says, it had been appointed that the Christ should suffer these things and rise from the dead. You see, Jesus points them back to their story. You see, the world, by crucifying Jesus, they sought to tell a very different story about who he was. See, that's what made them foolish and slow of heart, is because they had bought into a different story about who Jesus was. They took him, they beat him, they crucified him. 
And in doing so, they thought they sought to say, forget his claims that he's the Son of God. Forget his claims that you can find any sort of forgiveness or redemption or peace in this man. We beat him, we killed him, that's it. Move on. But instead, Jesus points them to a different story. He points them back to what Moses had written and promised about the Christ. He points them back to how these promises had been repeated and reiterated throughout the prophets. He points them back to a story of a good and loving God who created everything and who desired to live in communion with His people. He points them back to the story about how His people, they rebelled, seeking to be their own gods, and in doing so, brought about the curse of sin and death on all creation. But he points them back to this story of how a good and loving God would not leave his people in their sin. But promised that he would send one who would come and by his death and resurrection restore everything and reconcile the entire world to himself. Jesus points them back to their story because it's our story that reminds us who we are. It's our story that reminds us that even though we're lost in the darkness of our sin, we have a God who loves us too much to leave us there. You see, we live in a world that is constantly speaking a different story about who we are and how we're called to live. And let's be honest, it speaks rather loudly And quite compellingly, too. And we need to hear a story, a different story, the story that God has invited us into in Jesus Christ. So when we find ourselves caught up in this rat race, trying to prove our worth by what we can acquire and how we present ourselves, we need to hear again that story of Scripture that says that you are loved apart from anything that you could ever do but because of the perfection of God's Son, Jesus, and His death for you. When you find that you're clueless trying to raise children, or finding that you don't know what you're doing when whatever your your calling might be, you need to hear again that story in which that risen Jesus promises His Spirit dwells in you. And that He will strengthen you for all the tasks that you've been called to. When you're caring for sick loved ones or despairing and mourning over death, we need to hear again that story that says that even though we are subject to death and decay and even though we're powerless against it, our God is not and the risen Lord Jesus promises that you will rise with Him and live with Him eternally. When the world tells us one story, we need to hear again the story that our God speaks. When the world says, do more, try harder, attain more stuff, we need to hear the story of one who is beaten and bloodied and who by bearing our cross, he brings our striving to an end and we can come and find rest in him. 
You see, this is why we practice devotion to the Scriptures. This is why we seek to read these words and immerse ourselves in these words. It's not because by doing so, God will like us more. It's because in these Scriptures, we encounter our story and we encounter what God says about us. And when we remember our story, we can then remember who our God says we are. That in Jesus, we are deeply loved children of the creator of the universe. And that through Jesus, we can discover what living actually means. We read these words to remember our story because by remembering our story, we remember the identity that our God has given us. And in in remembering that identity, we remember who he's called us to live, who he's called us to be, how he's called us to live, even in the midst of our present brokenness. You see, sometimes I think we make this mistake. And and we treat the Bible as if uh, in here there's this spiritual answer book. And and if you just read it and and apply it correctly, then all your problems will, will just magically go away. But you see, I can't promise you that. Especially when countless times the scriptures promise that in this life there's going to be suffering and trial. There's going to be pain. We don't read these words because if we read them and apply them, then we'll answer all of life's difficult questions. But the thing that I can promise you is that you will encounter God in these pages. You will encounter the story of what our God has done for his creation in his son, Jesus Christ. And you will be reminded that in him you are deeply loved. And through him you can truly have life. Amen? Amen. Amen.